Sorry, I was in the new wine thing. Okay, um, Becca's going to read the scripture right now, and it's going to be the whole um, chapter of Luke 7. And uh, what I, I want to prime your listening by asking you to listen for the answer to three questions, which will make up the three parts of the sermon today. One is, who is Luke telling us Jesus is? What per- particular sort of thing is Jesus? Two, what particular sort of thing is Jesus after? What does he appear to be seeking in this passage? And three, what particular thing does he seem to find instead with us humans? See if you can get the answer to all three of those questions. Hey, good morning. We'll be reading um, from Luke 7 all the way to Luke chapter 8, verse 3. You can find it on page 1571 in the few Bibles in front of you. All right, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we be expecting someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent to us, sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go to see out in the wilderness? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in their palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. There is, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom even seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. 
these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Thanks, Becca. <clears throat> all right. Did you get all the answers? If you get it, you get your tithe back. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Okay, so the three questions. What particular sort of thing is Jesus? This is participatory. Yell it out. Sorry? Healer? What? Prophet? What? Forgiver? Okay, so prophet. What do it mean? A great prophet has come. God has come to help his people. What did you go out into the desert to see? Reeds? Fancy people? No. You went out to see a prophet. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is parallel to John the Baptist in that one. He's making a point about himself. If this man was a prophet, he would know who was touching him, right? Okay. Second one. What is Jesus looking for? It's faith. Okay, hopefully you get that one. Great. Okay. What is the thing that Jesus tended to find instead? The opposite. That's very clever. Um, <laughs> anybody? There's a couple of possible answers here. Judgment. Yeah. Sorry? Legalism. Okay. Yeah, he's gonna, he, he generally is going to find some kind of self-righteousness. And he's going to find that faith is really scarce. Okay? Now, so how, how you could sort of summarize that is you could say something like this. The Son of God saves through faith, but faith is the scarcest thing that there is. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the prophet greater than any prophet that came before him, saves by faith. And it turns out faith is the scarcest thing that there is. Okay, so let's go through those three parts. The first is, is that the Son of God is a great prophet, greater than any prophet that has ever come. So, okay, so think about it this way. Um, all of the Gospels tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. They say them in slightly different ways. In Matthew, Jesus isn't called the Son of God until the very end at the climactic moment where Paul, where Pilate says, are you the Son of God? And, and, and Jesus says, it is as you say, right? It leads up to that dramatic moment. It's at the very end, right? John starts out with, in the beginning was the Word. And he wants to start with Jesus as the Word of God because he and he's writing to Greek people, and Son of God means all kinds of crazy stuff in Greek religion because, like, the gods were people who fornicated with everybody, and then there's sons of gods, which are demigods, and, like, that's a weird concept, and, like, we need something that's more, like, singular, eternal— so he uses the Logos, the Word, right? And then the Word is the Son of God in John's Gospel, right? Mark just starts right out, right out of the tracks. He's like, this is—I'm telling you a narrative about Jesus, the Christ, who is the Son of God. First verse, right? Luke starts with his miraculous infancy, and then in chapter 3, when he begins his ministry, he, God says, this is my Son. He goes in the desert to be tempted, and the devil says, if you're the son of God, can you do this, right? Or do this, right? And so we know, Luke has already told us that Jesus is the son of God. But what does son of God mean? See, that's the problem for us, because most of us tend to think in terms of progeny, right? We think um, so-and-so, you know, is the father of, that is sired, like they're genetically related. And of course, that's like 
one of the main things it doesn't mean, right? And that's partly because we don't like, and we don't normally think of the Bible one because we think of ourselves in America as individuals, most of us. We're like individuals, and we're just, we can be whoever we want to be, or we're not going to be like that person, or we're certainly not going to be like our parents. Okay, you're going to be exactly like your parents. That's the truth, okay? The truth about reality is this. The question is not, what kind of person are you going to become? Because you could become any kind of person. Here's the, here's the real question about your future. What version of your parents are you going to be? That's the real question about your future. So your, your parents, there's a spectrum of what they could have been. Like, there's, there's the best they could possibly be in every possible way. There's the worst they could possibly have been in every possible way. And your parents are some mixture of that, right? Some of us had really great parents, and they were really great in a lot of things, but not in others. Some of us had pretty bad parents that were really bad in most things, and a good in a couple. Like, you're, usually it's a mixture. And the question for you is, well, who you're going to be is, what version of that spectrum am I going to be? Right? Like, if you've met my, some of you know my mom, my dad passed away long before I came here. But if you knew both of them, you would look at most of my life, and almost everything in my life, you would say, that makes sense. But you would also notice that I'm not just like either of my parents. Right? And because in, in Old Testament times, it was people understood that children became like their parents, especially if they did the same occupation and they lived in the same house and off the same property and all that kind of stuff, which is true in those days. And so there's a, for example, there's a guy in the Bible called the son of Belial. Belial is Hebrew for worthlessness, right? So this was a guy who behaved so worthlessly, it was basically assumed that his father was worthlessness, right? Because he so resembled worthlessness, right? Now most of us don't particularly like that one. And so when we talk about Jesus being the son of God, that needs to get filled out. What does all—what does it all mean, right? And one of the things it means is this. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the greatest prophet. Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Now, for Christians, that's, that's a little bit difficult for us because we have the Bible, and most Christians who have read the Bible think in terms of the literary prophets. And so we're like, oh, Jesus is like Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the minor prophets. So the minor prophets are not less important. They just wrote a lot less, so you could call them the better editing prophets, right? And so— but most, when we think of prophets, that's what Christians tend to think of, is you tend to think of these literary prophets. That's not how Jews, and that's not how Muslims think about prophets. Generally speaking, a prophet in their mentality is, are the heroes of the historical story of the faith. So, for example, um, Jews think of Abraham as a prophet, though it's very difficult to come up with any literary prophecy from Abraham. Muslims think of Abraham as a prophet, right? They think of David as a prophet. Now, we think of David as a prophet in that he wrote the Psalms, and Jesus said there's a lot of prophetic stuff in the Psalms, and so—right, but he's not labeled in the Bible as a prophet, really, right? So in the Jewish story, the greatest prophets other than Moses, there were two of them, are who? This is participatory. They both start with E if you need a little help. Elijah—that was helpful with the E's, right? Elijah and Elisha, right? So like in— and so they came along at like one of the worst moments in the history of Israel, right? So, so Moses starts out the history of Israel as a people, right? As, as a nation brought to God under one covenant, right? And so then they go forward and things really decline. And at kind of the bottom where people are attacking from the outside and the kings are wicked and things are terrible and um, one of the prophets actually doesn't think there's any believers left in the whole country, right? These two prophets rise up and they bear the authority and power of God in themselves, in a really strange way. 
Because you see, most prophets in the Bible, there's no miracles associated with their lives. They tell the truth and they get mistreated. That's basically the story. Okay? In, in the case of Elijah and Elisha, God so inhabits them personally that whatever they think is best, they just do and it just happens. Including striking whole armies blind, allowing a servant to instantaneously see the entire spiritual world when he feels like it. Um, there's this point where Elisha has helped this widow and her son dies and he, he just jumps on top of the boy's dead body and yells, no, you're not dead! Right? And he, the boy comes back to life. Um, Elijah calls fire down from heaven repeatedly. Right? So there's this point where he has this bet with the prophets of Baal. And they're like, so here's how we'll sort out whose God is God. Uh, the one who gets fire to come down from the sky. That's the person whose God is real. And so he like wins that one and then he, you know, kills all of them. And then there's another place where like, there's this king who has fallen and he thinks he's going to die and he's not sure and he wants a prophetic word to know and he's hoping that it'll be a good news. And so he sends 50 soldiers to go get Elijah to come and tell him if he's going to live or die. And so these soldiers come up and they go, you know, they call Elijah. They're like, you know, the king wants to talk to you. And Elijah's like, no. And he calls down fire from heaven and it consumes all 50 men. And so the king's like, well, I still need an answer. So he sends 50 more men, right? And they show up and like, the last guy said, Elijah, come down. So this guy, you know, not to be outdone, says, Elijah, come down right now. Like he's talking to a six-year-old, you know? And Elijah calls down fire from heaven on this, this, and, and consumes all 50 men. And so the king, like a third time, is like, sends 50 more men. Like, apparently 50 isn't enough, dude, right? And so they show up, and this guy takes a different tack, right? And he's just like, Elijah, please, please, dude, like, respect my life and the lives of these men. We couldn't tell the king no. Like, would you please, please come talk to him? And Elijah's like, I like you. So he goes, so he goes, and he tells the king, um, you're gonna die. And the king dies, you know? And it's just, I mean, that, in fact, it's, this is so much the case with Elijah. So, and there's, you remember the place where Elijah, like, Elijah is walking in a town, and this bunch of, like, teenage thugs are like, going up baldy, meaning like, going up to heaven like Elijah just did, be dead, right? And he's like, oh, why don't you get mauled by bears? And bears come and kill them, right? There's this one point where Elijah is, no, Elisha, Elisha is dead, okay? And he's in a tomb and like, he's nothing but bones left. And there are these people that are going to bury this dead guy. And there's a, a raiding party that comes in there like, we need to get rid of this dead body, dead body, quick. So they open up this tomb and they throw the dead guy in there in a rush, right? And he lands partly on one of Elijah's bones and he comes back to life. Right? <laughs> now that's authority, okay? That's authority when somebody can fall on your bones and come back to life. All right? And you see, Elijah and Elisha were very—and see, there are churches uh, all over the world, many in America, who actually believe that's one of the reasons why there are no miracles today, they believe. Because if you look at the Bible, there's really not a lot of miracles. There's like a sea parting with Moses, right? And a bunch of stuff related to that that's miraculous. And then there's this flurry with Elijah and Elisha, and then a big flurry with the New Testament, Right? And they're like, look, that's salvation history. God, like, punctuated these moments, and then that's it. Like, that's why, like, if, you know, you don't get healed of breast cancer now, like, it doesn't mean you don't believe. It's like God 
instituted these things through miracles, but we live in real time, right? Now, I don't think that's right at all. But, like, you can see where they get it from when you understand what that moment in Elisha and Elijah's life was like. Okay, so, when Jesus claims to be this prophet, when they say a great prophet has come among us at the raising of somebody from the dead, they're not talking about Jeremiah, right? Jesus is inserting himself in the mold of Elijah and Elisha. The one who in himself, in his own body, possesses the full authority of God over all of creation and over all things that are happening, right? And you see, the centurion gets that. He gets it invested in this person, Jesus, is a sufficient amount of authority that he doesn't even have to come to his house to heal his servant. If he just says, you're healed, that's it, man. That's all there is to it, right? He's that kind of prophet. And you see, Luke wants you to add that into your understanding of what it means to be the Son of God, right? Now, what that also means is this. If you think about the first two stories in this chapter, and I'm hoping over the next week you're going to use this for your own personal devotions, right? That you're going to have a Bible, and on Monday you're going to read the story about the centurion. And you're going to have a piece of paper, and you're going to think, like, what is God trying to tell me about himself in this story? And on Tuesday you're going to read the story of the woman from Nain, and you're going to say, what is God trying to tell me about Jesus? But I'm going to give you a little footnote right now for that. In the first story with the centurion, right— He says, Jesus has authority, right? In the second one, what's the main idea? Right? See, there's two, there's two phrases if you're, if you're paying attention to Jesus' emotions. In the first one, what's in the the story of the centurion, what's the, the great emotional clause in that one that tells us what's really happening? Jesus, what happened? Jesus was amazed! Right? This is the guy who knows everything, right? Like, he's amazed. It's kind of like when your kid does something right finally, and you have to be like, that was so great! Oh my gosh! Like, you have to do enough so they think you're being condescending, because like, you just never know when it's going to happen again, man. And so you're like, this is so good! So good! Right? He's like, you got to at least act amazed, or be amazed, or it's just, it's so great emotionally, right? And he's amazed because this guy actually has faith. Now think about that. How many times in the Bible does it say Jesus is amazed at something? He does, he does a lot of amazing things. A lot of people are amazed at Jesus, right? People are amazed when he raises the widow's son from the dead, but Jesus is amazed when somebody believes. <laughs> now think about the scarcity of that. How scarce is it that people are raised from the dead? Like, it's relatively scarce, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, I think I'll probably bump into somebody raised from the dead today. Like, that's not what you expect in your day. Like, it's a rare thing, right? And yet, Jesus, that's where the people are amazed at that, right? Jesus is amazed when somebody actually believes. And he doesn't believe everything right about Jesus. He only believes one thing right about Jesus, that Jesus has authority, right? Now, The other thing about the prophet is, see, it doesn't matter if somebody has all authority and they hate you, right? The thing about the prophets is is that they cared about the people of God. 
They cared about people, and they wanted them redeemed. They wanted to tell them the truth about God. They wanted them to believe it, and they wanted them to have peace with God, and they wanted them to receive forgiveness, and they wanted them to have all the blessings that come from walking with a God who cares about them. And so they tell them the truth, and they try to lead them into that truth, and they do everything that they can. And so Jesus sees this woman, and here's the second great emotional phrase in this chapter that tells us absolutely what we're supposed to see about Jesus. It says, Jesus saw her, and his heart went out to her. Right? Not because she's somebody, but because of her position. She was a widow already, and now she lost her only son. All right, those are the two details Luke gives us. And because she has no one to protect her anymore, and probably in many ways no one to provide for her anymore, his heart goes out to her. Those are, those are very human things. Those don't have anything to do with spiritual blah, blah, blahs. They're like, this woman is just, she has no future right? And so he goes and she, he raises her son from the dead. I mean, uh, there's seven passages in Luke that are only in the Gospel of Luke and not recorded anywhere else, and this is one of them, which is kind of odd, right? Like you would think raising somebody from the dead would be on all the greatest hits lists, right? I mean, it'd be like, you know, some like band that like had 27 incredible songs, and there was one that was like on the number one chart for 127 weeks, and it's just like not on the disc, right? You're like, they're just trying to make me buy another disc. That's what's going on here, right? But, but the way it functions here is a prophet is someone who has authority and someone who cares, right? But, the, but see, one of the things that's, that he's driving at is cares about what, right? He cares, and he has authority, but he cares about what, right? And the passage says, that the main thing is the forgiveness of sins. That's the main thing that he's focused on, the forgiveness of sins, right? Which leads to the second thing, right? That Jesus says through faith. Jesus says to this woman in the last section, he says, your faith has saved you. You can go in peace, right? Which is a very strange, a very strange thing to say, right? And yet, like, it's so evident from this passage that faith is very central to what's happening, right? In the first section, he says, I'm telling you, not in all the people of God have I found faith like this foreigner, right? The centurion is some Roman guy, and he gets it somehow. And none of the Jewish people that Jesus is trying to minister to seem to get faith. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that's holding it up, Right? And then he gets to the end with this woman, and he's like, your faith has saved you. And it, when he's talking about the heart of this passage is, of course, his discussion about John the Baptist, right? And when he's talking about John the Baptist, he gets sarcastic. And I can't go into a theological treatise right now about godly sarcasm versus bad sarcasm, okay? It's usually bad, all right? But there are places in the Bible, in the prophets, where God uses sarcasm, and there are places where Jesus uses sarcasm, and this is one of them. Because— Right? They come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you know, John the Baptist has this question. It's an important question. Are you the one who was to come like this Messiah, or should we expect somebody else? Right? Which is reasonable, because John's imprisoned, and the Messiah is supposed to be the great liberator, right? So he's unjustly imprisoned. That's mainly what he's probably thinking about, because when you're unjustly imprisoned, that tends to cross your mind, okay? And like, Jesus, the Messiah is the great liberator. All the prophets say the Messiah is to be the great liberator. So that doesn't work, right? How long is he supposed to wait? 
So then Jesus is like healing all these people. And so these messengers show up and like all these people are getting healed. The blind people can see. They're like, um, Jesus, we're not sick. We have this question from John the Baptist. Are you the one who's going to come? Or is there somebody else, right? And so he says, and you notice, he doesn't directly answer the question, right? He says, look, look around and go tell John what you see, right? The deaf hear, the blind see, the poor hear the good news, the dead are raised, hence the including of the widow from Nain right before this, right? The dead are raised. And then he says this, this is sarcasm. Okay, this is sarcasm. Blessed is the person who doesn't lose their faith because of me. Why is that sarcasm? Because what could you possibly do to create faith in somebody? Besides, make a blind person see, a deaf person hear, a dead person live, people everybody ignores be paid attention to, the poor hear the good news, lepers and incurable disease cured. Like, what possibly could you do that would make people believe something other than that? And so he is being sarcastic. He's like, well, bless— God bless the person who, when they seize all this, can somehow cling to faith. Right? And the idea is, faith is so scarce. We humans are so hung up about it. Right? That's actually the next point. But you can see this focus on faith. Now, part of the issue is, is that That's a trouble—it's kind of a troubling idea, because if Jesus is the Savior, why would he say your faith has saved you? That's—that's that's a little bit of a difficult idea. So, okay, let me try to illustrate it this way. So last night, I took—I was taking my son fishing. It was opening day of game fish season, right? And so my five-year-old, who like basically never wants to go fishing, said, um, Daddy, can I, can I go fishing with you, right? Which is basically like a sentence to having a ruined fishing trip, okay? And— but, I, but she's five, right? And I feel for her. So I was like, sure, baby, just get some warm clothes and we're going to be out there a while. So she, you know, she gets on the boat and she wants to drive it, of course, and move. So we get out there. And so Jude starts fishing because he's 10, right? And so like I rig all our stuff up and like I put on thing and I cast out, right? And so, and so like these fish start biting. So I like, I hook this fish. I'm reeling. I'm like, I'm sweet, sweet, come here. Reel this in, right? So we start doing this and she's so, like, she's reeled in about four, okay? So like, and, and she, she's da like, Daddy, can we keep it? You know, and they're like this big. And, and so I throw it in the live well until she isn't paying attention. And then, you know, we're just kind of going through this process. And so about the fourth or fifth fish, like I put the fish in the live well. I'm casting out there. She's walking to the back of the boat. She's like, Daddy, I think I might be the best fisherman in the world. <laughs> right? Which like you could see because Jude had lost a fish and she had lost no fish. You know? And it was kind of funny because— my son is, is not used to being outfished, first of all, and he was a couple fish behind. And he's just like, he can't—he's he's trying to keep his eyes in his head. He's rolling them so hard. He's just like, this is so stupid. I can't believe it, right? So we get home, and I tell Lexi kind of how things happen, and Jude's right there, and he's like, he's like, Mom, Mom. She thought she's like, she's like, I'm the best fisherman in the world. She's like, Dad, took us to the spot. It's his boat. Like, he like— he rigged it. He put on the worm. He cast it out. He set the hook. He reeled the fish in like two-thirds of the way. And then she finally like turns the crank a couple times. Dad like pulls the fish into the boat. And she's like, I'm the best fisherman in the world, you know? And she's like, he's like, it's crazy. It's, I can't believe how like, duh. Right? And I'm like, 
buddy, we kept fish this big when you were five, you know? But, okay, so it turns out if Helena is to catch a fish, and I'm going to say, you caught this fish. She has to do something. Right? She's got to do something. Or I pull the fish, and I go, look at the fish you caught, and she's going to be like, I don't think I caught that fish. Right? But the minute I let her turn the handle three times, and she lifts up on the rod, all of a sudden she thinks she caught the fish, right? But she did kind of catch the fish. In fact, there's this, um, there's this law in Florida, in pretty ocean fishing, where, because there's, you know, these limits, right? And some of these game fish are really big. And so, you, and sometimes it takes like five people to get them in the boat. So the question is, whose fish is it? Like, whose limit does it count towards? Because some fish, like Kobe, you only get one, right? The law in Florida is whoever is holding the rod when the fish comes in the boat caught the fish, okay? So you can imagine how this rule might be abused, handing a five-year-old around and be like, sweetie, hold this right now while I gaff this fish. You know, you're like, it, it's like that, right? In fact, I got in trouble one time because I was on a TV show catching cobia, and I caught one, and we got it in the boat, and then this other guy was having trouble with one, so he had me hold the rod while he gaffed his own fish. And so I was caught on camera, on television, holding a rod, clearly on the same day, for two fish when the limit is one. The fine for that is considerable, um, but it was never—nothing ever came of that, right? So, I have a friend named Jim Luther who was a Bible college teacher. We're going to come back to the fish in just a second. Who was a Bible college teacher, and he, he was at, like, his—he was teaching in class on biblical salvation, and he went to his class, who were all from, like, fairly fundamentalist churches, right? And he said, listen, are we saved by faith? And they all—they're all, like, you know, obedient children of conservative families. They were like, yes, Pastor Luther. And he was like, No! And they were like, you know, wetting themselves. He's like, no, we're saved by Christ. And they're like, oh, yep, that's right. Then are we saved by faith? And they're like, yes, Dr. Luther. He's like, no, we're saved by grace. Everything is God's generosity. You had to exist first, and then he had to not kill you when you were constantly a sinner. And then, like, he had to create salvation and do this and reveal his love and create a covenant and everything is free gift. It's all from God. It's all grace. You're saved by grace, right? And they're like, that's true. We're saved by Christ, by grace. And they're like, then by faith, right? And they're like, I guess. And he's like, no! You're saved through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus and his propitiatory suffering for you, which imputes the righteousness of God to you, right? And they're like, yeah. He's like, then are you saved by faith? They're like, I don't think so. He's like, yes! (laughs) Right? So, because, because in a lot of things that happen, there are things that are a necessary condition. It can't happen without that thing happening, but it's not the thing, right? And salvation is like that. I mean, God does everything. The Bible even says he gives you the faith you must have and exercise, but you must still exercise it. You must still believe. You have to have faith. You have to believe, and you have to do it. Does that accomplish your salvation? It doesn't accomplish it, but it saves you, right? Because all real unions are built on the conception of consent and receiving, right? Like, there's somewhere the law gets involved if it doesn't work properly, right? You have to say, yes, I want this. I want to be part of this. I want to be in union with Christ. I want to receive what he's given. You have to engage in that receiving. And so that, in that, there's nothing else you could possibly contribute. And it's not even, biblically speaking, a contribution. It's just a necessary condition. But 
because God has done everything else, if you believe, your faith saves you. But here's the thing. Why would Jesus say something so unguarded as that? I mean, you could really, you could really take that the wrong way. Right? And make much of man and little of God and be like, you know, well, you know, I guess it's faith that saves and you can have— Right? Here's why. Because faith is so scarce. Because faith is so critical. Because God has already done everything else. And the thing that has to happen is faith. You have to believe that has to happen. Or everything else God has done, you aren't connected to, right? Like, if you can't get online, like you don't know the password, the internet might as well not even exist for you. Because you can't connect to it. And faith is how you are connected to everything God has done for you. And the moment you're connected, you have all of its benefits. And if you are not connected to it, Scripture teaches, you have none of its benefits. And so does faith save you? Yes. Right? Okay. Which leads to this issue, which is this entire passage is nearly devoid of faith. In fact, there's a place later in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes, meaning when he finally returns again, will he find faith on the earth? Now think about that. He's asking what seems like at least a rhetorically genuine question. Will there be any faith on the earth when I return? Right? That's the big question. We see in this passage, we see all through Luke, that the thing that is so profoundly scarce is faith. He doesn't find it anywhere in Israel. This foreigner guy gets part of it right, and Jesus is amazed. Now, on one level, that is really really, really good news. Right? It's really good news, because here's, here's why. Here's why the idea that Jesus is, is teaching that faith is incredibly scarce. Right? He says in Matthew's gospel, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Do you, you see the implicit idea of scarcity there? Like, how many mountains got moved last week? Zero that we know of, right? Like, I mean, like, he, he's, trying to, he's trying to say, like, it's so, like, it's a, the power is amazing. Like, it's incredible what can happen if there's any faith at all. In fact, and if you have just a tiniest bit of faith, incredible things can happen. And yet, like, we don't see those things happen very often. What Jesus is saying, he's like, he's saying, it, it's, faith is that rare. Real faith. Now, you might be like, I don't know, Nick. Man, people have lots of faith. Okay, listen. Jesus is not saying fake faith is rare. Okay? If you read Colossians chapter 2 in the Bible, there's a, there's a four-page book in the Bible called Colossians. If you read chapter 2, the Apostle Paul outlines a, num a number of fake faiths or fake spiritualities. So there's a certain kind of like, like imagination gone awry mysticism that he's like, that's just fake. Like there's a kind of judgmental legalism. There's a kind of spiritualistic licentiousness. Like I'll do whatever I want and then I'll call it spiritual, right? It's like the spirituality of promiscuity, you know, kind of deal. And there's like a number of these kinds of like faiths that aren't the kind of faith Jesus is talking about. And see, because see, in the Bible, those aren't of the Spirit. Those are of what the Bible calls the flesh. 
They are spiritualities of the flesh. And there is a lot of that. The human heart is constantly generating fake faiths. Right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is the kind of faith that takes God at his word, that is drawn through it to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves, that open themselves to God's truthfulness so that they would have the mind of Christ, and they would learn to keep in step with the Spirit and grow in the kind of virtue that makes you able to bear the freedom of God and that drives your life outward in self-sacrificial love. That faith. That's what's scarce. That's what's unheard of. That's what he couldn't find in all of Israel. That's what even John the Baptist couldn't muster at that moment. Right? And here's why that's good news. Because it means that you're just the normal kind of bad. Right? Like, that's good news, man. Like, I wish I could show you how little faith is in me. Like, I have people all the time, like, people who've kind of lived in, like, secular world for a bit of their life, and they just don't feel very religious, and it's hard to believe in God for them, and they really struggle with it. And they're like, Nick, I get that you're, like, religious guy and stuff, and, like, I guess that works for you. And they act like I was kind of born this way, like I was born to just believe stuff, you know? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I believe in nothing. Like, I'm so faith weak, I can constant—I can hardly explain to you, right? Like, if I didn't have this sort of driving conviction about the truth of Jesus, like, I don't think I could do any of this stuff. And like, some days I'm not even sure about that, and yet some days I'm so sure of it. And, like, I—I'm like doing everything I can to hold to and live out a mustard seed, man. And so, so here's the thing. If you're a skeptic and you're, you let yourself off the hook that way, quit it. It's, it's not right. Real faith. Now, if you want to talk about like fleshly faiths that we all manufacture, yeah, there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of that in you too. You just have some secular version of it. So it can hide within your ideology. But we all, all of our fleshes are creating these fake faiths where we think we're fantastic. But the real faith, right, is the scarcest thing in the world. And it's the scariest thing in the world, even among the people of God. And you can go to all kinds of different churches who have all kinds of, like, emotional idioms of how they behave, right? Whether they're racial or cultural or artistic or whatever, idioms of ministry and how they pray for each other and how many times they say just and how loud they yell the name of Jesus and all these other kind of, like, pseudo-magical Christian practices, right? And then, like, we still, we still live like the world, man. And we're like, we're so, you know, we have faith. No, you don't. <laughs> faith transforms people in the image of Jesus. That's what faith does. That's the faith Jesus is talking about, right? And I, and I long for that, and it's everything. So quit playing that game. And secondly, if you're like, man, I just don't have any faith. Listen, that's, that, you're human. That means you're a human being. And real faith is the scarcest thing in the world. And so you should—you need to learn to pursue it even when you don't have it. You need to seek it and desire it, and sometimes you need to step out in it. And it's like—it's not this thing that like, oh, I don't have it, but everybody else seems to. No! It's like—it's different than that. Right? So exactly what is it then? Well, think about the four characters. 
There's four people that come to Jesus in this passage, right? The widow from Nain doesn't come to him. Jesus comes to her. So there's the centurion, there's the messengers from John, there's Simon the Pharisee, and there's the sinful woman, right? What distinguishes them, right? The centurion has faith, the sinful woman has faith, the Pharisee and John the Baptist do, do not have remarkable faith in this passage, right? Well, it's not the usual suspects politically, right? It's not gender, it's not race, it's not nationality, it's not language, right? Because the Roman guy's a foreigner, probably speaks a different heart language. You've got a woman who's plus faith here, right? And then you've got—you could argue it's the two more religious ones that do worse, right? But Jesus is religious too. I mean, it's not like that's going to work. So, like, what is it, man? Right? And then, then you have to notice that the centurion— doesn't believe everything. He just believes the authority thing, right? So you could argue that it's humility, right? Because what do the, what do the elders say to Jesus when they want him to come and heal the servant, right? This man is so fantastic. Like, he loves our people and he's built our synagogue. He what? He deserves. Listen. <laughs> Nobody deserves to have anybody healed from the brink of death. Okay, that's like trying to deserve a rainbow, okay? That's just a complete non sequitur. The thing, they just don't go together at all, right? You can't, there's certain things you can't deserve. And this guy didn't deserve that. Meanwhile, his attitude was like, I don't, right? He says, I don't deserve to have you even come into my house. Now, those are different perspectives, aren't they? This man has done a bunch of good stuff. He deserves to have you do this. I don't even deserve to have you come into my house. And Jesus, at the, at which phrase does Jesus go, oh, I'm very impressed. It's not that he built the synagogue. It's that you don't even deserve to have you come into my house. Jesus is like, oh, he, he like clutches his pearls and everything. He's like, wow. So you could say it's humility because the woman cries on his feet and this man says, you're not, right? That's close. That's close. But if the woman is the one who goes in peace with her sins forgiven, we know absolutely that she's the only one in this entire passage who's fully approved of. And Luke does this on purpose, right? Luke is, Luke is the most feminist writer in the Bible. He intentionally uses female characters and raises them to the top because in a, you know, male-dominated reading culture, people pay attention. They're like, well, why is there a woman there? Why is there a woman there, right? And he highlights that stuff. So here's this woman, right, kind of out of nowhere, Right? And we're, you know, we want to do our, our post-structuralist feminist critique, like, oh, this woman probably wasn't even that bad. It's probably the patriarchal. No. Luke is like, no, this woman was pretty bad. Like, she lived a really sinful life. She was a big floozy, okay? This, this, was, this was a problem, okay? That's not the issue. The issue wasn't she was pretty good. That's the whole point is that's not the case, right? So maybe it's that she, like, it, was it the abundance of her tears that she could produce a lot of, like, facial fluid? That's probably not it, Right? Long hair is just a matter of time. So what is it about this woman? What makes her fundamentally remarkable? She's repentant. Yeah. But here's something. I didn't ever notice it. In all the times I've read this passage, I never noticed it till this week. Because I was looking at the whole chapter. You know, normally when I look at this passage, it was always— the Pharisee and the woman. And it was always about loving much versus loving little versus being forgiven for much, which is a really important spiritual point, which hopefully on Friday when you read this in your personal devotions, you'll focus on that. But here's what I realized. This woman is the first person of all the thousands of people who have come to Jesus who took Jesus at his word 
and came to him for what he said he had come for. She's the first person in the Gospel of Luke of the thousands that had come to Jesus who came to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Think about that. Even the centurion wanted healing. Everybody came for healings. Everybody came to listen to the teaching, right? Jesus said, why did you go out to John the Baptist? Why did you go out to him? What did you think you were going to see, right? Did you, were you going out to see like wavy plants or like important people? No, you went out because you thought you were going to see a prophet. But then why didn't you believe him? A prophet is somebody who tells you the truth. And so you've got to believe him. And what did he tell you? Why did he baptize you? It says in Luke 2 or 3, John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Moral release, freedom from guilt, and therefore freedom from denial and self-destruction. The right kind of self-respect rather than the fake kind, the ability to accept your neighbor. Everything flows from the freedom that comes from God giving you rightness with himself, a rightness forever into eternity, and a rightness with your neighbors. Like, that's the heart of it all. That's where redemption and revival and renewal all come from. And Jesus says it over and over and over, and nobody gets it. And none of the religious people get it. They have the Bible, and it's, there's sin this and sin that, and please repent and come back. And none of it matters. And this one woman who's apparently not read enough Bible had just slept with enough people that it dawned on her to take him at his word. And so she comes to him and repentantly for the forgiveness of sins. And her faith saves her. And listen, I would love to give you like 27 like sexy little pointers for your life. But when I read this passage, I don't see that. What I see is at the very foundation of all things human, the most fundamental point Jesus could ever possibly make, that the faith that he is seeking to stir in us is so rare, especially among the people who say they belong to God. And he calls us to take him at his word. That our greatest sickness is our sin. That his greatest gift is forgiveness. To set us right with God and then to set us right with ourselves. And through that, to set us right with our neighbor so we can become truly authentic people. Guilt will never allow you to become an authentic self. Ever. And you will in eternity lose yourself. And only forgiveness can unite you with God and unite you with yourself, and unite you with your neighbors. It's the only thing that can do it. And Jesus demands that. And he says, just take me at my word. Start with this, admitting what you are, and admitting what you need, and receiving it freely, and your faith will save you. Right. And so, um, we're going to hear a song, and take communion. And the song is basically about that. 